Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. I'm Ian Bauer. I am a consultant um, in a very large Japanese consulting firm uh, based in London. And I specialize in predominantly agile transformation and ways of working for organizations ranging from telco media through to automotive and manufacturing and financial services. I uh, have a serious passion for design thinking, service design, and outside in uh, product development, where I make use of a lot of agile ways of working to actually iterate through product development life cycles and innovation. So I help a lot of clients do that, as well as helping them to think outside of the box from what they normally actually do in their day-to-day business lives to help them actually truly transform, uh, transform from an organization that could be potentially quite sluggish to something that is able to respond to a lot of market demands and market needs very, very quickly, and especially in today's world of serious disruption from multiple competitors busy chewing away at incumbents' markets, uh, it's becoming more and more of a need to, to be able to do that. So we call that business agility, and uh, I, I'm quite passionate about creating that agility. Uh, I'm also a bit of an entrepreneur by heart, um, having started up one or two little companies on the side simply for the passion of it. Um, I'm currently doing, uh, well, starting up another one as we speak, simply because I found a bit of a bugbear in the market, which I thought could be done a bit better. So, you know, I, I always go out there and get my hands dirty, exercise and flex that design thinking and service design brain, um, as well as the agile and digital passions that I have in trying to solve problems, everyday problems that uh, I might be facing. And my assumption with a lot of that is if I'm facing it, there must be other people that face it. So I'll start off with those kinds of uh, premises and uh, I then test that out uh, with other people um, and try and build things out. So I do it in my personal life and I do it in my professional life. Um, So yeah, so that's a little bit about me from a professional perspective. Other than that, I'm a happily married man, um, living, as I say, in London with my wife and soon to be a little boy that's on the way. Uh, So I actually feel that things like, well, discussions like this one um, around the digital workplace is becoming even more important in what will eventually be a very changed lifestyle for both my wife and I. And having to be able to manage a household as well as outputs um, in the workplace to a level that that I've been used to as well as potentially creating alternate revenue streams for our household in a digital sphere. So that's basically me. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm just very happy to be part of this podcast. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks for joining again. Um, It's interesting you you mentioned the the child on the way. um, And and I don't want to steal your your thunder from when it happens, because what what you're used to is your output will never be the same. Yes. Um, uh, and and yeah, there's no way to ever prepare for it either. 
uh, or at least in my opinion, I know some of the others might disagree, um, but it's, it's, uh, it does change your life completely. Uh, and, and that ability to work anytime, anywhere on any device um, is hugely useful. Um, and also in an, in an ecosystem or, or a working environment where that's a, a done thing as opposed to a, um, you know, a sort of frowned upon, that's a new thing, we don't do it that way, we do it the old way of nine to five at your desk. Whereas, you know, often, as you'll know, you can be sending email on your phone and on the tube or you're on holiday, but you just need some work because of the, the inspiration is struck and you've got your device with you to do some work. What, what did you, you want to talk about the coronavirus and, and people working remotely? What, what are your thoughts and what have you seen with your customers in that regard? Yeah, so it's been a very interesting couple of weeks, actually, you know, as as we started to see this uh, coronavirus COVID-19 pop up, um, obviously, there's been a lot of, um, I, I dare say, panic in the market, uh, where people simply don't want to um, contract the virus. Uh, they also don't want to pass it on. And our firm, and in fact, just the nature of what I do, um, actually requires us to have a lot of face time potentially uh, with various clients, um, multitude of different um, demographics and user types, as well as requiring quite a significant amount of travel. So you can imagine we, we're often putting ourselves at quite a lot of risk, uh, simply being the management consultants that we are. Um, now, with this particular outbreak, what we've actually come to realize is that, yes, we're a technology company um, with a somewhat human touch, and we need to try and figure out how we maintain that human touch, but keep our people safe. So we've instituted a discretionary work from home policy, um, which is across the board, regardless of which client you're at. Uh, obviously, we, we communicate to our clients on the way we like to look after our people, but we've equipped every single person in the organization with complete remote access to all of our domains. Um, we have ensured that our technology is some of the best in the world with virtual private networks, um, so providing that secure access with state-of-the-art uh, teleconferencing software. Um, as well as ensuring that you know we have online collaborative uh, collaboration tools, so that you know we truly are not hampered, regardless of where we might work. And that's actually been really refreshing, uh, given that I have the choice truly to decide to work from my home where I feel safe, um, be able to even flex the hours in which I work because I now don't have that commute time. So I can, you know, chunk my day up slightly differently. Um, I can still also collaborate significantly better in some instances because instead of relying on people to all be in the same physical space, it's much easier for everyone to be present in a digital space um, when it is suitable to them. So using online authoring tools such as Confluence, for example, is something that we use on a day by day basis. And, you know, it's proven to be super powerful because, you know, people just go in, comment, add, update, et cetera, et cetera, as they need to. And when we do want to do online collaboration, 
um, we simply spin up a call uh, and we do that. And we've become actually really attuned to it to the point that it's quite funny. I, I came into the office today expecting to see a bunch of people and it feels almost like a ghost town because everyone's taken to the digital workplace so well. Um, and we, are, we aren't actually seeing any decline in productivity to our clients and the delivery that we give to our clients, which is also testament to, number one, the tool set, number two, uh, the maturity of the individual, um, both from wanting to perform as well as wanting to be responsible. So I found you, that quite you, refreshing. Do you, do you think that's because you work in a, let's say, modern working culture? Uh, yes. where technology is part of the fabric and yes. in the same way would you if you go into some customers is that a, is that a foreign concept or that's kind of the norm as well yeah no i think i think i am quite fortunate in the culture that we have uh we we do live the culture of being tech forward because if we didn't how could we sell it um, and it's one of the things that we do definitely sell as a consulting and advisory firm um, some of our clients are a little bit less on board with this. Um, so I do know that one of our clients, for example, has decided to split their team half and half. So half the team will be in the office while the other half is working from home. And then the following week, they switch around as an example. So it's quasi working from home, so to speak. Um, where they, they still feel it's justified to have people in the office. And I do feel like that's an interesting concept because cabin fever is a real thing. Um, I, I don't think we can always just work from home. I think human interaction is important. Um, and I think this period will actually help a lot of people shape what is a happy medium between pure online and pure digital workplace versus an augmented workplace versus a non-digital workplace. And I think all of these things do ride in continuums. Yeah, I mean, I think so, so that example of, of alternating weeks, I mean, the, the first thought that I had on that was that, well, those people will only work with each other because they're in the office together, so they, they bond together. And I always mm -hmm. see the other team as the, not necessarily the opposition, but, but the other team, mm -hmm. um, unless, they, unless there's some sort of randomization where you're mixing it up all the time. I don't know how specialist those teams are. Um, it's, it's an interesting thought. I mean, you know, we, we're having this discussion in our team meeting at the moment around coronavirus and, and you know, how do we handle it as a business and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And we are saying, actually, if you look at the work we do, even though we are mostly office in the office, office bound, um, most of our time is spent on calls or because um, our, our outsource team is in a different country anyway. So we, we're always dialing into a call to talk to them and brainstorm with them remotely, whereas mm -hmm. only some concepts that you really need a whiteboard. And using the digital whiteboards aren't that useful. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem to work the same. You don't seem to get the same flow. And I was just wondering with that cross, you know, alternating weeks and, and brainstorming, do, do you need to do that with those sorts of teams? Um, yes. So I, I, I'm fully on board with what you're saying. And there is, there is something special about having some of that, that physical time, um, that you simply cannot recreate sometimes in the digital world. Um, 
with these particular teams that I referenced earlier, they they are often um, more specialist teams in the sense that they aren't deriving strategies or um, creating specific types of architecture that needs to be discussed over a, over a whiteboard. I think these particular teams are more specialized in the development sphere. So where these teams are often used to, you know, collaborating over online GitHub type of tools or, um, you know, being able to understand particular code ty- code areas and develop accordingly in their time, that's what they're doing. So the, the on-prem kind of piece is simply there to stay connected and feel like you have a sense of belonging um, mm. and a sense of space a sense of place as opposed to necessarily saying, well, you have to be here to do a particular whiteboard session. And I think that's, that's a really important thing to think about because, you know, different role types even, um, I suppose would demand different types of digital workplaces. Uh, you know, the strategist would probably need a little bit more stand up, collaborate in person potentially. Um, at certain times, uh, I know definitely from a design thinking perspective and a service design perspective, more in in room present interaction is far far more beneficial than trying to do that remotely. We've tried that; it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it, it really does depend. So I think from a digital workplace perspective, what it is really really useful is. You know, I, I, I like to call them admin days uh, where you're able to just crunch through a ton of work um, without having too many distractions. And the, the digital workplace really enables you to have those catch up calls, have the quick meetings to discuss particular topics, but not necessarily do the brainstorming element. Um, mm. And then you're able to author off the back of those. Um, and then that collaborative authoring is, is made further possible, right, through through specific tools. Um, also, be, you'd, you'd made mention earlier of being able to pick things up and be very mobile. I think that's also really, really important. And, and it's a good point that you raise because, once again, being a management consultant and constantly being on the road, you don't want to feel like you, you can only do your work in one place. So that authoring, that um, that collaboration, that online collaboration must be enabled uh, through this digital workplace and complete remote um, and um, uh, sort of mobile way of working. And it, it does help, once again, um, time and place, right? And I think that time and place is changing. How, how have you handled in your sort of discussion with customers the security factor, the information security pieces, if those are appropriate? You know, yeah. Devices, bring your own device, that sort of thing. So different sectors have very different law, uh, rules around that. Um, at least within our organization, we are uh, pretty open, um, to be honest. Uh, we, we run by a serious trust run on a serious trust basis. We don't necessarily have bring your own device. Um, we do get company issued devices um, and we're able to choose practically any device we'd like to work on 
uh, both from a, um, a PC Mac perspective or a, a mobile phone, uh, we can choose those. Um, or if we would like to work on a tablet, we can choose that. So the organization would rather provide all of that because they do encrypt all of the devices with um, the corporate encryption software in case something does happen. However, they don't want to restrict us. So um, that's okay from our side. When we go on client sites, though, often clients issue us with their own devices. So we we work off of their encrypted machines, um, and they often use virtual private networks um, and complete secure secure tokens to, to access their their particular service. Um, with the clients that we don't, and we, we do have some clients where they don't provide us with their own equipment, um, they, they trust us to have security in place. But then again, we wouldn't necessarily be working with um, hugely sensitive data. So once again, different role types. Uh, if you're a data, data scientist, um, you'll probably be working with a client machine. If you're a strategist, you'll probably be working off um, a, a consulting machine, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, how do you blend what you need to do with um, what the customer has potentially locked down? So you're, you're very, it's you know, really, these are different freedoms. Yeah, it, it does become quite challenging. Um, and that's the reality. So what we do find ourselves doing is because of these online portals, we're able to access some of those online portals um, and we can still collaborate. But what it also does sometimes, which is very actually sometimes quite important, is it creates that clear, almost physical divide between a client piece of work and a firm piece of work. So, you know, keep the IP where the IP needs to be. Um, it's almost like seeing different domains um, hosting different pieces of software, different logins to, to access that software. Um, sometimes the clients just want that, that physical separation. And from, from a consultant perspective, it does become quite challenging sometimes because you want to move information from one thing to the next, um, obviously responsibly, um, that is relevant to the job that you're doing. Um, and sometimes you can't do it. So you have to recreate things and that's not efficient. And I can only imagine that in time to come, that will all start changing. And I think even with the situation that we are in at the moment, people are starting to wake up to a lot of that. Um, and it is starting to change slowly but surely. Uh, so yes, time, I think give it time, another year or two and it will start breaking down. But once again, it depends on the sector. Um, financial services is a lot more strict than um, telco media, for example. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that, that is, and, and, and having moved around in different industries. Yes. I remember when I, when I moved to the UK and I spent bit of time with one of the banks and then I moved to a real estate company and I gotten so used to having a, a non-persistent VDI mm. and a laptop and a persistent VDI as tools mm. to do my my stuff um, and when I rocked up at this, this real estate company I got this this laptop and I was like this laptop's not even encrypted like seriously yeah. um, and, and the USB and, and then, 
Um, yeah, all that, like all those things, all those things that I'd sort of, even, even when I joined the bank, I was like, Jesus, this is crazy. How can we lock all this stuff down? Mm-hmm. Um, to the point that I, I got so indoctrinated with that. Even now I said, they go, you know, if you plug anything into USB port, it's going to be encrypted. Sorry. Um, so don't plug anything that you don't, that you want to keep because the minute it gets plugged in and gets formatted and it's encrypted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's that mindset that is so different. Um, and, and, and so the point I was trying to get to is that that those mindsets become so key to to your to your digital workspace in the future because what's in the banks has almost become the the proliferation into every other industry, much like Formula One racing is the proliferation into the consumer vehicle. Um, yes. you know the, the, those those improvements like um, charging um, the batteries off the braking. Uh, to give you more fuel efficiency, um, yeah. those sorts of things. You know, those were in, in Formula One for years before they got to consumer vehicles. Absolutely, um, and I think even you know, as we start to look forward into the future, and we're starting to see more devices um, leveraging cloud services, um, even even financial services firms are starting to trust the cloud a lot more. You know, with full challenger banks being based in the cloud now, you know, when that was probably taboo, not even five years ago, right? Um, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that ability to transport large data sets, um, as well as large data files, you know, be them, uh, you know, high definition video or imagery or, you know, presentations, et cetera, et cetera. I think the cloud is starting to enable a lot of that cross-platform kind of movement um, and using smart domain management and um, smart enterprise kind of rules, I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more freedom in being able to move things around because of known identity, um, pre-screened content, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that's just, that's the way I feel things are going to go. Have you noticed that with with uh, sort of the blending of the corporate to the personal device, mm-hmm. um, and and having if you work with customers, and I don't know how much time you're spending on on side with customers, a need to overlap, say monitoring tools, for example, which affects your experience, or uh, if you use a, if you're using a BOE device at for your corporate job, and then you go see a customer, and then you've got to plug it in, you have to almost go completely different device. Mm-hmm. Any of those sorts of scenarios? Um, so, yes, had a couple of those scenarios in the past. Uh, however, that's becoming less and less, to be honest. Um, people are starting to, you know, secure things, especially when it comes to mobile phones, at least, and email clients. Uh, I think the ability to containerize things uh, on a mobile phone, obviously register that mobile phone um, with the domain and be able to then access you know, client emails on, on your device within that container uh, is becoming a lot more prevalent, um, mm. which does, it does help things quite a lot. Um, obviously, when you're talking about a, a larger device such as, you know, a laptop PC or whatever it may be, it's a bit harder to do that because that containerization isn't isn't as good, I suppose, or it's not part of the fabric. 
Um, and that's when, you know, unfortunately I've had to carry a laptop for a client and a laptop for my, for my firm, um, while well, traveling. You, you've answered the question I didn't want to ask because it was too easy to ask. Do you have to carry different devices for different companies? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that's what, and that's what I was wondering because I remember the, you know, the good old days that that's exactly what used to happen is you used to either have a, a workstation that was set up for you in the building. In fact, it used to be next, next door to the Microsoft building and used to be work for them. We had a dedicated desktop that was literally on our side of the wall, plugged in through an electric cable into the environment. So if you need to do it, you go sit at that desk and you do it there rather than walking outside and through the front door uh, in, into Microsoft um, because they would not allow any of our devices on their network at all. Um, and thank God we didn't have to, to commute with laptops. Um, something I wanted to ask you about, so you talk about design thinking and I was yeah. wondering if you might want to talk through what that means you know, from a, a, a lifecycle point of view. And specifically, I wanted to talk about personas and gamification, if you, if those are covered in your approach. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, first and foremost, on the design thinking component, there, there's obviously a lot of layers to sort of service design, design thinking, um, design principles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the area which I'm becoming more and more um, specialized in, I suppose, or um, gaining a lot more skill in, is in an area called business design. Now, to many people that could seem as common sense, um, and really it is, because what it does is it takes the actual design thinking uh, practices of you know divergent and convergent thinking where you have a, a problem or a hypothesis, you start to diverge from that uh, in as many ways as possible, throwing up crazy ideas, debunking ideas, um, throwing up even more crazy ideas, etc. And then you start converging into what the actual problem is, so getting to the root cause of that particular piece. And then you start diverging again into whatever potential solutions they could be and what gadgets and widgets you could develop to create that. And then um, you start converging into what is actually realistic. Now, that's called a double diamond. It's a very, very commonly used uh, practice or methodology. And that's just one element. Because what happens often is a lot of people go away and they do these amazing you know, hackathons or design jams or um, you know, design sprints or whatever it may be. And they come up with crazy, crazy ideas. Um, and then they say, well, we just need to make that. Right. But they don't necessarily test that with anybody. Um, now that brings in the next layer, which is what you mentioned, the personas. So, so important to say, okay, well, who are we making this for? What do these personas or the, these potential people actually look like? What are they interested in? What do they, what do they do? How do they interact? Um, and let's get into their mind. And it's very, very important when creating personas, not to just create them on your own personal bias, because often, um, and I've fallen into this trap before, you, you're kind of in a rush and you create a bunch of personas on what your perception of that persona is, without even going and speaking to that kind of persona. So there are levels of persona that you can actually create, some which are completely unvalidated, all the way through to fully validated and um, interrogated, so to speak. 
where you can say, well, yes, I have met a Mr. Smith and Mr. Smith is 45 years old and Mr. Smith, you know, actually has a house in the countryside and two dogs and two children, a lovely wife, and he loves to drive electric cars, et cetera, et cetera, right? So those are very important. That helps people get into the minds of those different people, those different potential customers. Now, that's also very well and good, but once I've created a, a product, a potential product with those people in mind, I need to actually test that. And that's where we come into this thing called desirability. Now, when we talk about desirability, it's sort of starting to say, well, okay, you think you've solved a problem through this divergent and convergent thinking based on a hypothesis, but will I actually buy it? Is this thing that is this thing that you're creating something that would actually solve a pain point in my life? So it's testing that desirability with real customers. Those personas you created, it's going back to the real people and saying, does this thing actually make sense? Would you put your own heart, cold hard cash behind it and buy it? Um, if they get really excited about it, well, that's great. So that's the second piece of the main puzzle. Um, the third piece is to say, okay, well, what is this thing that we're building? And is it actually feasible to build this thing, right? So do I have the systems and processes in place to do this thing? Uh, can it scale? Um, is it rational? Uh, all of those kinds of components, right? And also, is this thing too expensive? Is it too cheap? Uh, are the materials right? Um, there's no point in gilding everything. You know, sometimes something that's plastic is just fine. So it's, it's adding a layer of sense to these kinds of things. And then the last thing is all about sustainability. So not just sustainability from an environmental perspective, because obviously we need to do that and we need to understand the impact on our community, our environment, et cetera. But from a business perspective, are the margins that you expect to generate on this decent? Can this thing actually be ramped up to some kind of full-scale production? Um, and or if it's a digital potential service, can this thing actually be proliferated in a digital manner and actually still be maintained effectively? Is the uptime good? What's the cost of doing that, et cetera, et cetera. So it brings in the business case and the business rationale behind something. So by the time you look at it, you've got these three primary components. Number one is the problem and the product. The second thing is, do people really like it? Um, and then the third thing is, well, is this thing actually realistic? Can we make money off of it? And can it scale to a point that it is sustainable and you know a money-making um, business, business idea, right, or product? So that's business design as a whole. And where I really come into it is creating the layer over each of those elements. So I delve into each of those and say, okay, well, let's start with creating something and let's go off the wall. Let's then temper it by understanding what what features customers really like, what they don't like, what's useful, what's not useful. And then let's strip it down to the bare bones on what's actually necessary. And then also let's potentially change things so that it is something that is rational and uh, makes business sense. Does that answer your question? It, it, it does. Sorry, I was just uh, put myself on mute. <laughs> um, so that and that process. I mean, is that a is that a week long process? Is that a 
uh, a month long? I mean, how how long do you spend going through um, the steps of this? Well, it all depends, right? Um, as many things. So, if you are a startup, um, the quicker the better, because it can start to become quite expensive. Um, if you are a large organization trying to make massive changes, it'll probably you'll probably spend a bit more time and go through a little bit more in-depth analysis. Um, generally speaking, though, uh, it's sort of a six-week process, um, six to eight weeks, where you'd want to at least come up with a concept that is uh, somewhat testable, um, that has some kind of business backing. Um, and this is talking about some kind of physical process or an MVP as code or something so that you can actually validate things with, with end users and then substantiate the business case. Obviously, after that, uh, you go into your actual building and finalization of design and uh, marketing and rollout and all those kinds of things. And with all of that, it um, could, sorry. Someone was having a bit of fun there. Um, obviously, after all of that, uh, you can decide on what your approach for um, be it guerrilla marketing um, or traditional marketing or um, whatever it may be, you know, on, on your actual go to market strategies. So, all of those have varying time lengths, too. So, I, I don't know if you ever read the book Sprint. Um, by, oh, it's NAPP, K-N-A-P-P. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to the other guys. They do a whole exercise in a week. Now, obviously, it's not yeah. a deep, um, you know, market analysis or anything like that, but, it, but it's about, uh, and I quite like this structure, and it's worth looking at if, if, you, if you're interested, mm. where, you, where you're breaking up your day, uh, like the first morning is, is that piece about what is, what is the goal we're trying to achieve in, you know, X is it two, two years, five years, one month, whatever it is. Um, and then you've got, you begin the experts in the afternoon to share their knowledge around achieving that both good and bad. And then you go through the cycle. I don't want to steal the whole, um, thunder around it, but yeah, every, every single day has got something that's been target targeted towards that goal. And that includes building a mock-up or screen, you know, whatever that mock-up is, screenshots, et cetera. And even interviewing people, um, that, that would be key um, uh, influencers or, or contributors to what the end product would be. And that sort of gives you the stage to take it forward into maybe that longer cycle, which is to say, okay, we, this is a really good idea. Um, we've, we've passed muster. Now I'm just going to spend six weeks or two months going a bit further. Um, the, the reason why I sort of bring it up is that, that you know, six weeks is a long time today. Um, yeah. You almost feel like you want something MVP'd in six weeks. So, so don't okay. forget, throughout this period, you are still testing things. Uh, you are still validating things, right? It's not run into an into a room and in six weeks later you come out with something. Um, this is the process of formulating a pretty solid business case with a whole bunch of elements that have been validated, built, confirmed, researched, et cetera, et cetera. So by then you probably have some kind of MVP, a very, very low fidelity, well, not even MVP, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a beta, um, 
on something that you're wanting to pursue, but has got some kind of customer feedback. Um, and customer doesn't necessarily always mean external, right? So mm, customer exactly, is external, yeah. but also internal. So internal stakeholders. So you you will bring you know marketing and finance and um, production and all those kinds of people along on the journey because they're probably going to be contributing to this along the way. So the six weeks will actually run really quickly. Um, but by the end of it, you have a significant amount of material that is not just, you know, slide decks. Um, you've got a ton of institutional knowledge um, with an actual validated product that you can then decide to ramp up um, iterate further on or whatever it may be. And naturally, you know, all of these things would then go into, you know, further agile, well, ideally agile development, uh, product development processes. Um, and the traditional agile sprint, of course, uh, is a two week sprint. So this is only three sprints, right? Mm. Mm. And, and who would you have involved in this process? as many people from different parts of the business as possible um, and potentially customers. So it's really important to not develop these things in silos. Um, what's often really, really useful is having a core team uh, that's kind of own the solution and they're probably gonna be your product development team. And within that product development team, you'll probably have someone representing something commercial, someone representing something that is the the actual output skill set, so be it a developer or someone that's involved in manufacturing or whatever it may be. Um, you'll probably have someone that's a marketer, um, someone that's maybe a bit of a designer, um, and one or two other potential skill sets. But then what you do is through different workshops and different um, interventions, you're going to bring in a whole raft of other people and opinions and views so that you get as many views and um, and opinions really uh, on the particular point that you're at. So, you know, when you when you creating, you know, your divergent thinking um, on what is the problem, it's great to have young people, middle-aged people, older people, um, you know, people from different uh, demographics, um, you know, living in different areas potentially, all of those kinds of things definitely contribute to coming up with solutions that are actually a lot better thought through because mm. often we have a lot of bias based on our personal situations. And um, the more diverse you you have these sessions, the better. And then you, you bring that back. So once again, think of that double diamond. You break open and get as many people as you want, as you can in the group. Uh, maybe you're running different sessions, collecting all of that, synthesizing that information. And then as a smaller core team, understanding what that synthesized information looks like and then potentially distilling it into a couple of different features, stories, topics, whatever you want to call them. And then once again, breaking that open uh, and diverging into let's get ideas on how we solve these discrete pieces um, and then converging once again and synthesizing as a team into something that is then deliverable. So that that's quite a, quite important you know it's it's a broad spectrum of people that are potentially um a core team with a lot of peripheries well peripheral individuals that will come in and out of the process 
Yeah, so it sounds very similar to the sprint process. I mean, it's the same thing. You have a core team, uh, let's say, between five and eight people that mm-hmm. are the same sort of mix. Um, and then you bring in the, the SMEs or the, uh, well, your end user customers, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. um, down the road. Uh, and that's, let's say, Thursday, Friday in this process mm-hmm. uh, in order to validate your prototype, which has been built by the core team. Um, we're going to have to tie it up here. Um, do you want to share any sort of social media connect uh, connection options in a Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn? Um, yeah, you can use my LinkedIn. The other ones I don't really use. Um, so if you just look for me, Ian Bauer, um, in, in the London area, you'll see me as a senior principal consultant. Great. Well, thank you very much and appreciate you giving us some of your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really thank you for giving me the airtime and uh, it's been a really interesting discussion. So thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.